bookends, the monthly Meet the Author session from the team approach, featuring books that are written for managers, supervisors, and HRD practitioners. I'm Susan Stam, and I'm pleased to have Stuart Levin and David Coleman as my guests today on Bookends. Their book, Collaboration 2.0, is written for anyone who has a need to collaborate virtually today, which I believe is pretty much most of us. This book not only addresses the advances in technology that enable us to collaborate in a Web 2.0 world, but it looks at the people side of collaboration and the challenges of collaborating effectively. To order a copy of Collaboration 2.0, you can visit David and Stewart's wiki. The address is book20.collaborate.com forward slash wiki. I'd now like to introduce our guest today. We have David Coleman, who is the founder and managing director of Collaborative Strategies, www.collaborate.com. He's been involved with groupware, collaborative technologies, knowledge management, and online communities and social networks since 1989. He's a thought leader and frequent public speaker industry analyst and author of books and magazine articles on these topics. His comments and analysis are most frequently found in the collaboration blog. He's worked with a wide range of collaboration vendors, including IBM Lotus, Microsoft, Macromedia, Adobe, Intuit, EMC, and Oracle, and has helped them with strategy, positioning, or demand generation projects. He also works with end-user organizations to help them select collaboration technologies, and most recently working with them on a collaborative consolidation within the enterprise, building online communities, and creating a variety of social networks. David also works with distributed teams across organizational boundaries to help them become higher performance teams. David has co-authored Collaboration 2.0 with Stuart Levin, and Stuart describes himself as a resolutionary. His innovative work with agreements for results and his cycle of resolution are quite unique. Getting to resolution, turning conflict into collaboration, was an executive book club selection featured by Executive Book Summaries and named one of the 30 best business books of 1998. It's been translated into Russian, Hebrew, and Portuguese. His book of agreement, or the book of agreement, has been endorsed by many thought leaders. It's been called more practical than the classic Getting to Yes, and named one of the best books of 2003 by CEO Refresher. He consults with many government agencies, Fortune 500 companies, professional associations, and organizations of all sizes. Stewart teaches communication and collaborative skills for the American Management Association. Stuart and David, welcome to Bookends. Thank you. You sound like the odd couple after that. I'm not sure if I'm Felix or Oscar. It's interesting, Susan. Just a very, very short backstory is that David invited me into this project. Ah. Um, because uh, even though he's got a, a huge, extensive, and um, very, very... Uh, um, um, uh, oh, uh, renowned um, reputation 
in the world of technology, David understands and appreciates that uh, the people side is absolutely um, essential. So he asked me to join him in this project. And I, I'm really glad that he did because, of course, you know, the back end of the book, which is your end of the book, Stuart, uh, is essential for the front end of the book, which is David's end of the book, to work, which is the technology piece, of course. And um, and, and, and that's that's a good uh, background piece of information, which um, – lends itself to, uh, I wanted to tell our listeners today that we are uh, going to begin the interview actually with David, who authored the front end of the book, which deals with the technology end of collaborating virtually. And then we'll we'll talk a bit with Stuart, who authored the back end of the book, the second half of the book, which talks about the uh, the people side. Uh, but I, I, you know, wanted to welcome you. In actuality, you. there's a third part where we both kind of wrote things together in the last few chapters ah. look at how this comes together uh-huh. and helps you um, you know bring all this together and collaborate better and the final chapter of the book we did around collaboration and sustainability yes yes okay well, well I, I'd love to jump into this and, and very interestingly David uh, I was having a conversation with a colleague earlier today talking about your book and, and the session today and that it was called collaboration 2.0 and um, was presented with a bit of a quizzical look when we were talking about Web 2.0. So uh, as Julie Andrews said in, in one of my favorite movies, The Sound of Music, let's begin at the very beginning. Uh, how would you like to describe for us, you know, Collaboration 2.0 and Web 2.0? Could you just kind of in a nutshell tell us tell us about that? Sure. Um, web, I'll start with Web 2.0 since that's the earlier definition and since we're starting at the beginning, as mm-hmm. Julie Andrews said. Um, so Web 2.0 is really the idea uh, and, and kind of the philosophy of some of the new tools that are available on the web. Most of them are SaaS tools, which means software as a service. So that means you subscribe to them rather than you buy a license to them, and they're available in the computing cloud from some server somewhere. SaaS tools tend to be great for um, smaller and medium-sized businesses because they don't have a lot of IT resources, and this allows them to get up and running quickly and not have to have someone in there to install stuff on a hardware server and all that other stuff that we used to go through. Um, The idea of Web 2.0 philosophically is really more about participation and transparency. So what I mean about transparency is your willingness to be uh, upfront about yourself and your organization and what's going on. So I have a blog uh, called the Collaboration Blog, and mostly I write about technology. But you know, part of it, part of the transparency is about letting people see me. And my dad unfortunately died suddenly about two months ago. And mm-hmm. in my blog, I started writing about um, you know what was going on with my dad and myself, uh, as well as uh, you know collaboration and other things. I think I did a, a blog called uh, Death, Collaboration, and Taxes. Around April 15th. But the idea of transparency is, is making yourself visible and that you're participating, you're, you're writing, you're, you're Twittering or microblogging, you're working in a wiki, you're using uh, lo- location-based tools. Um, in terms of participation, you're part of a social network or a community. And there's 
differences, there's actually generational differences in how people uh, deal with this, but there's uh, all this helps around trust. So it's really hard to have collaboration without any kind of trust. Now, when we have collaboration 2.0, what we're really looking at is a variety of different collaboration tools and how they're being fit into this web 2.0 mold. So the idea of being a SaaS offering, um, the idea of it being fairly intuitive and not requiring a lot of training, the idea of that you can use what you need rather than buying a whole license or you can uh, sign up and uh, pay for your sign up but that everybody who interacts with you, you don't have to pay for. So there's a whole bunch of different ideas involved in this, but basically it's adopting a set of tools and modes of interaction based on Web 2.0 that help support uh, computer-based interactions between people. If I could just yes. jump in for just one short second. Please. Uh, I'm sure that some of the folks uh, listening are not real steeped in technology. Um, and what I need to say about that is, you know, 16, 17 months ago, all the terms that David is, is using <laughs> were completely foreign to me. Right, and right. Really <laughs> this has been a and, steep learning curve. Wow. And now I, I, you know, as David talks, it's kind of everything I, I understand it completely, but it's been a great learning. And when you think about the world we're living in now, for everybody out there listening, it's an essential learning. Oh, I agree. I agree. And, and Stuart, uh, just to make make you feel a little better, a lot of this came into um, you know into my vocabulary in reading your book. I mean, there's things in here that uh, it's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> yep. uh, so uh, my goodness, and it's and it's all wonderful and um, and extremely helpful and valuable. So, so uh, you know, it was really interesting uh, in reading the the book and, and talking about it and. Uh, Stuart talked about the fact, David, that you um, invited him into this uh, to support, you know, the people side of the whole collaborative process. But you talked about a disconnect uh, between the development of collaboration tools and the people side of collaboration. And I, I thought this sounded kind of odd. If you're developing tools to help people collaborate, that you could miss this. Could you talk about that just a little bit? Well, there's a couple of ways to look at that. Number one, um, you know, engineers build tools, and there is a, a line of thought saying that they are not people. But um, in any way, they, they look at things very differently than the man on the street would. And so they often will build tools that engineers can use, but normal people can't. So that was kind of the first problem. We're getting through that, and, you know, since collaborative tools have been around for about 30 years, at this point we're getting to the point where the engineers realize that they really have to make them easy for people to use. Um, but really the disconnect is that collaborative tools often get in the way of the interaction. Um, so if the tool is so difficult and requires so much work that it, it blocks the conversation, it's not really a good collaborative tool. And there's a big disconnect there. Most of the tools in the enterprise today uh, fall into that category. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, think about doing a web conference. You have to get on, then you have to make sure everybody's on and that they're, you know, in the right role and that, you know, um, they know how to use the tool and they can 
display stuff and in subwell conferencing tools, you have to upload the slides beforehand mm -hmm. or you have to make a poll beforehand. You can't do it on the fly. Others, you can. You know, it's all this stuff. And every time I'm on one of those web conferencing things, if somebody doesn't know how to do it, everybody has to stop until the other person figures it out. And so the technology really, in some cases, gets in the way of the conversation. Yeah. A friend of ours, Dee Clark, who's on the call today, talks about it in terms of having too many moving parts. <laughs> um, what, what would you say, David, is the real cost? You know, as so you think about uh, all of these tools, and some people might be thinking, gosh, do I really want to learn all this? Uh, but yet, you know, we are living in a world where we, we depend upon each other and we don't have access to people in the next cubicle. What would you say are the real costs associated with ineffective collaboration? And do you have any examples that could, you know, kind of highlight this for us? Sure. And I know Stuart's laughing because he's heard this example before. So we interviewed a woman at Target, or Target as we like to call it. Yes. And, um, and she was a purchasing person. She buys uh, women's clothes uh, from mostly vendors in Asia. And when you do um, clothing, you have to buy six months ahead, so she's buying winter clothes now because it's summer, and um, she used to inter interact with these uh, vendors in Asia by email, and sometimes she'd have to fly over there and stuff like that, and she went to the IT people at Target and said, hey, look, here's my problem. I, I really have a hard time interacting with these people, and email doesn't work very well, and they send these big attachments with pictures of clothes, and they don't always come through, or they're blocked by the filters or the firewall, and, you know, it's, it's really difficult. Is there anything you can do to help me? And the IT people said, yeah, of course. We're evaluating Microsoft SharePoint, and we're doing a two-year evaluation, and when we're done, we'll be glad to let you know about this wonderful tool. <laughs> so she walked away and said, well, you know, great, but that doesn't really help me. So she went online and looked around and found this uh, wiki-based collaborative tool called GroveSite. Hmm. And without IT involvement at all, she went online. It's a hosted SaaS tool. And in 20 minutes, she was able to get it set up by herself. And she, you know, cost her like 20 bucks to get started. And she invited all her vendors to be part of it. And they could post their pictures up there and have discussions and all this stuff. And, you know, after only a few days, she started not only getting better delivery, but better pricing, uh, better interactions. The vendors felt that they had more to say and were more part of the process. And so she started telling other people at Target about it. Well, the upshot of the story is they're still evaluating SharePoint at Target. <laughs> there are 5,000 seats of growth sites. Oh, my goodness gracious. Wow. And so the point is that, you know, if, if you don't deal with it, people will find a way, and mm -hmm. there are more and more ways available. As I was telling you earlier, I'm, and I don't know if Stuart knows this, but I'm compiling a database of uh, collaborative tools, and I'm up to about 1,200 right now. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah, and, and just to add, you know, one little more piece, um, ineffective collaboration uh, often leads to ineffective communication. Mm -hmm. It leads to conflict. It leads to... Um, all the things that, that can go south in a business way, people have to do things over, people get into interpersonal, you know, feuds and arguments, mm -hmm. and that's why the project the, goes south. Mm -hmm. yeah, the people part of this is also so important, but, yeah. you know, both of them. Yeah, there, there, there definitely is a bottom line impact for sure, and I'm sure oh, you yeah. both observe that in many situations. It's, it's 
very indirect and intangible, and so it's very hard to measure. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times we will run into organizations where bean counters are running the organization, and they're asking for things like an ROI for collaboration, which is almost impossible to do. I mean, I, I did do a white paper on, on how to do this, but mm-hmm. it, it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. So um, it's often very hard to get support in those organizations for this kind of technology and process. Yeah. Well, uh, David, in, in the book, you, you also talk about um, this idea of utilizing what you call, refer to, and I, I don't think this is your term, but uh, the, a term that's introduced and was a new term for me in the book, a value network. Uh, I was wondering if you could tell us about this, uh, you know, how we would use this, why we would use it. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. A value network is uh, anyone that you deal with on an ongoing basis. So it could be customers, it could be suppliers, it could be a regulatory agency, it could be um, your PR firm or your lawyer. Um, there's a whole lot of people in, in your value network. The idea of a value network is really that you're exchanging some kind of value uh, between the different entities or the different people. Now, this, uh, there are some tools to deal with this. Uh, the original tools dealt with social network analysis, which really just mapped who talked to who. When you look at value network analysis, you're really starting to map what value is being passed back and forth between all the people in this network and why the network is, is strong or good or not so good and, um, you know, where there are problems, who the who the nodes are in the network, etc. Hmm. In some ways, Susan, to legitimize the value of the network, that's how David and I met. Really? Yes, that's actually <laughs> true. Wow. We, we met on a network before um, anything else, and because we were both in this network, mm-hmm. there was a certain level of instant credibility that we each had with each other. Oh, uh, wow, that's fabulous. That's great. Even though we live, what, 20 miles away from <laughs> Yeah, less than 15 miles away. We, um, we actually only met twice physically to do the book. Wow. We did all the rest virtually. That's, that's great. I've actually heard that, uh, I believe it's in Japan, that there have been two or three books now that have, people have actually written. I can't begin to imagine this, but they've written the books on their phones. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The world is changing very rapidly, and we're just hanging on with our fingernails. Um, David, could you provide an introduction uh, for us to the technologies, uh, uh, the collaboration technologies that you uh, introduce on pages 28 through 32? Could you just introduce us to these? Sure. I had to go look at what pages those were, but basically that's looking at virtual team space tools, mm-hmm. which you and I talked about a little bit earlier. Yes. And the idea of a virtual team space is a secure and persistent virtual environment that allows team members with various different kinds of roles to interact with each other uh, around what the team is doing around or a project and look at content and move through the process and help them reach a desired goal. Um, there are all sorts of different forms of virtual team spaces. There can be things like uh, eRoom or Groove, which are kind of e-collaboration tools. There are project team spaces like uh, things like uh, a new one is called uh, ViewPath. There's a new one called Liquid Planner. Uh, PlanView's been out there for a while. There are things uh, that are intranets or extranets like uh, WebEx Office uh, or intranets.com, which now has become WebEx Office. 
There's content and document management, such as tools like Vignette Collaboration. Uh, there are discussion boards uh, for threaded discussions, like uh, uh, WebBoard is one that's been around for many years. There's uh, online communities, so things like Jive, uh, LinkedIn, uh, Yahoo or Google Groups, MySpace, although I will differentiate those into social networks and talk mm -hmm. about the difference between communities and social networks. There's portals, there's uh, what we call distributed project management tools, there's wikis, things like uh, GroveSite or SocialText or uh, Atlassian's Confluence. So the, the, these tools take many different forms, yeah. but uh, the idea is really to help a team or a group that's distributed geographically to work together in a secure way. Well, I'd like to come back to, you started to talk, uh, you said that you would be talking about um, these uh, social networks and distributive communities. Could you talk just a, just a little bit about the difference? Um, you know, uh, I worry about the time that is involved in these. I, I, I think it was before we began the interview that I was talking about, you know, the fact that, that regularly I receive invitations now, it seems like daily, for a new uh, um, social networking community, and you begin to wonder, you know, when is enough enough? Uh, and um, you have to make your own decision on that. <laughs> that's in the book. Um, that a, a friend of mine said, I had to drop out of all my social networks so I'd have time to have dinner with friends. Oh. So I mean, they they do take a, a lot of time, and you know, I, I want to actually differentiate between a community and a network. Please. And there's some some discussion on this, but from my point of view, if you're in a, a virtual community, it's one in which a lot of people know you, there's strong social ties, and if you're not there, you're missed. Whereas if I'm in a social network, uh, the social the ties are, are not as strong, and it may be focused around a specific topic or something, and if I'm not there, I'm not always missed. Mm. Now, is, is a social community that something you, that you start yourself? Network. No, no, the one that you said the ties are, or, yes, the community. Right. Yeah, I mean, you can do either. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, we see people start their own communities. More often we work with organizations that start their own communities. Mm -hmm. Okay. I was also, uh, I really uh, was intrigued by the, the words virtual herds that you use in your book. Could you tell us a little bit about virtual herds and the evolution, as you call it, of, of interaction? Sure. Um, the idea of uh, the virtual herd actually, you know, kind of came from um, an article I read that a guy at uh, Harvard Business School did, and um, his name was, let's see if I can remember his name, um, it was, uh, I think, Nigel Nicholson. And um, basically the idea is that um, ancient man, you know, lived in groups for security so we wouldn't get picked off by saber-toothed tigers so easily and it was a way we survived and we did this for millions of years and so we were very social and um, you know Nicholson believes that we're hardwired our brains are wired for communication and collaboration well about 10,000 years ago at the end of the Pleistocene or the end of the Ice Age man really began to move from being a hunter-gatherer to a farmer where you started to stay in one place. And so um, in the past where you had kind of nomadic tro uh, groups, herds, um, that would come together and interact and, you know, people would move from one to the other, 
the idea of having all these nomadic groups um, kind of organized into a network of tribes made them much stronger, not only genetically, but they could trade ideas, they could trade things. Um, and when the herds or tribes stopped moving around, they later became a community or a society. Well, okay, so now it's 10,000 years later, and you know we still have these virtual tools, uh, but our instincts to communicate and collaborate really haven't changed. I mean, 10,000 years is kind of a drop in the bucket. People mm-hmm. don't change that quickly. We just have different tools or ways of doing it. So today, we now call this a social network or an online community or a distributed team. Um, so I'm on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, mm-hmm. Spoke, Refriends, etc. like you said, a lot of social networks. And I did already differentiate between a community and social network. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it takes a lot of time to, to keep this kind of stuff up. Yes. Now, a lot of the reason I do um, do this is because for me and for Stuart, in terms of marketing our book, it's very useful. Mm-hmm. Think about... Um, how you get referrals. So if you get a referral from someone you know and trust, it's going to carry a lot more weight than someone you don't know. And if people are part of a specific community, and like Stuart said, um, my friend John Maloney, who ran the Value Network Analysis uh, listserv that Stuart and I were both in, we know John won't let anyone in. And so when I saw Stuart respond about something around collaboration, I pinged him directly and knew he had a certain level of expertise to have gotten into that listserv. Um, so, you know, um, this is called, uh, that, that idea is called collaborative filtering, where you have a whole bunch of people either filtering things in or filtering things out of your community or network. And there's so much stuff online. So if you think of online as like the environment that ancient man had to deal with, you have a tribe of hunters out there and you have a bunch of people scouting to see if there's either mammoths to kill or saber-toothed tigers that are going to kill you. Well, now you have a whole bunch of people out there in the virtual environment that are scanning to determine if you have uh, information out there that's important to the group or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but notice also the whole notion of herd mentality, um, kind of just as David said when he first started speaking about this, there's just an instinctive uh, biological need for us to communicate and to be with each other, and this is, this is just one of the ways we're doing it in uh, 2008. Yeah, it, it is. It is. I want to I want to think about this generationally. So if you think about the millennials, the kids who grew mm-hmm. up in the digital environment that were kind of born after 1982, they're naturally part of this digital or virtual herd. And if you think about teenagers that tend to be more vulnerable and insecure than adults, they tend to want to stick with herd even more than anyone else. And so, you know, they have a lot of pressure to be part of the that virtual herd today. So you see kids today um, always texting or IMing each other all the time or on their cell phone. And this term um, is called life sharing. And it could happen just as easily in a virtual world, which I'll talk about later, like Second Life, where you could, you know, be sharing your life with someone else you're close to almost all the time. Yeah. Yes, I was fascinated by some of that. In fact, I had a goal to have an avatar for myself by today, and unfortunately, I didn't quite make it, but uh, it is something that I want to do. Just the just fascinating uh, ideas and and concepts to work with. Um, You you also talk, uh, David, about uh, 
one application which I think affects so many of us, um, uh, you know, today in the world of work, which is meetings. And, and the impact of Collaboration 2.0 uh, that can, you know, it can have on this. Could you talk a little bit about how uh, Collaboration 2.0 can really reduce meeting cost, time, and inefficiencies? Uh, sure. Um, so I do much less travel. Um, I actually am not a frequent flyer on anyone anymore, <laughs> and so they just strap me to the wing. Uh, but, um, you know, I used to do like 100,000 miles a year. I think Stuart's probably close to that still. But we were in, an, uh, in a symposium, and um, we found that um, every time you take a plane flight, it is three times more damaging to the environment than if you did that travel on the ground because it's high in the air. And so there are a lot of different tools for things like web conferencing, um, I know iLink and WebEx have come out with different tools that allow you to calculate what your carbon footprint is by using this tool and what it would be by actually traveling to a meeting. And um, I don't know what it's like there, but here in Silicon Valley, people are very, very concerned about um, being green and cutting their carbon footprint. Um, you know, for example, Google has know, solar panels on top of all their data centers and all their buildings, and mm. they give you $5,000 to help buy a hybrid car and all that kind of stuff. Wow. So even though our our administration doesn't tend to be particularly environmentally conscious, um, you know, a lot of the companies around here are, and mm -hmm. it's a, a very, very popular thing. And so um, it, with client companies, they're often encouraged to... Um, use a variety of different tools. So you could use web conferencing tools. We're using an audio conferencing tool today. Um, there are uh, tools like telepresence tools, which are still very expensive, uh, made by Cisco, Polycom, HP, etc. And they are very high definition uh, rooms where you link up with another high definition room and it's very much like being there. As a matter of fact, in one uh, instance, I saw someone in a lunch meeting try to hand a sandwich across the screen to <laughs> someone else because they kind of <laughs> forgot that they were, you know, and it, 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 it's, it's, not being, it's not really being there, but it is a, you get a much more of a feeling of presence of, of the other people being in the, in, in the room, although they're not really in the room with you. Mm -hmm. But, for example, we looked at a company of 4,000 people, and uh, for 2007, they spent $18 million in travel, you know, almost $10 million for airfare, 7 for lodging, car rental, etc. cetera. And, um, you know, we uh, proposed that, you know, if they could cut down 500 trips, mm -hmm. um, you know, at $2,000 a trip, they'd save over a million dollars, and that would pay for any collaboration tools they needed and still save money and cut their carbon footprint. Yeah. Now, the same client company has an initiative on their books to cut down their uh, electrical usage 90% over the next three years. So they are trying to cut their, their carbon footprint. And with gas at $130 a barrel, you know, it, it gets really expensive really fast. I don't know if you've looked at the plane fights lately, but over the last month they've doubled. Yeah, it's amazing what's happening. Absolutely yeah, amazing. Actually, 
just because of the, these environmental concerns, we decided to devote um, the last chapter of the book to really kind of driving that message home mm -hmm. because we think it's, it's uh, so important. I would agree completely. And I'm delighted so there to hear. There are a lot of tools out there, and there are companies that are starting to have policy about, you know, you really have to do the, try to see if you can do this virtually before you do it in person. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I should say, and I know Stuart will echo me on this, there really isn't any substitute for meeting someone in person. And generally, you want to do that first before you use these collaborative tools to help you in later meetings. Um, you know, because we are animals and social animals, it's really important to kind of meet someone and, and understand them and, and get an idea of who they are. And then once you've done that, it's a lot easier to use the virtual tools, which are a lot lower bandwidth. I mean, you, you don't get the same facial expressions or, you know, you can't smell their fear if you're doing it virtually. But, mm -hmm. you know, when you're in person with someone, you, you get a lot more cues. Mm -hmm. There is no substitute for the scratch and sniff test. <laughs> well, I, I, I can't, uh, I can't um, end the, the time with you, David, without having you talk a little bit about Collaboration 2.5. I was, uh, this is where you introduce these virtual worlds and these avatars, which uh, you had some rather fun and bizarre stories in there that I really enjoyed. Um, can you introduce these to our audience and talk a little about application for these, uh, for those of us who might be a bit skeptical and say, you know, how are we really going to use these things in the workplace? How are they going to help us be more productive? It's very early days, but um, the most common and most well-known virtual world is Second Life, right. uh, which is actually based here in San Francisco. Um, and, but there's probably 80 different virtual worlds out there, or even more, things like Terra or, or Multiverse or SimCity, um, Habo Hotel is one that kids like, um, you know, even Disney has a Magic Kingdom, a virtual Magic Kingdom. So there's a lot of them out there. Um, there. A lot of them are very experimental, but I'll talk about some of the things that have gone on in Second Life. And Second Life has some of its own problems. So the idea of an avatar is uh, creating a visual representation of yourself, and, and oftentimes it may not be accurate. So you know, if you're five feet tall, you may have a six-foot-tall avatar in Second Life, if you're, you know, a 90-pound weakling, you may be a muscle-pound guy in Second Life, um, you know, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of make the avatar represent what you want. And the avatar um, actually moves through this virtual space and interacts with objects in the virtual space and people uh, to do things. So uh, I know, uh, like, uh, the one of the big office furniture companies, um, Steelcase has an island in Second Life where you can go and look at different office furniture. You can try out the chairs. You could have your avatar sit in the chair, sit behind the desk, see how you know how it works. Um, Ford and some of the other car companies are actually selling uh, cars online in Second Life, and you can go take a test drive oh, on you know, the Ford whatever in Second Life. Uh, people are interviewing. Um, you know, candidates for jobs in Second Life. Amazing. Uh, because you get more cues than you would in the 2D environment. Now, right right now, there's there's some real problems because 
um, you know, the 2D environment that we work in on the computer is good for a lot of things. So I um, was doing some work with a nonprofit last year who was trying to build an online healing community for people who had kids that had uh, very rare and, and fatal diseases. And, um, you know, we would get into this 2D, 3D uh, argument and the point is that a lot of things we did in the 3D environment, we could really do very easily in a, Q, in a 2D environment. Um, the environment we were using was something called Quack, uh, QWAQ, which was based on uh, an open source uh, project called Open Croquet. It's a 3D collaborative environment, and it's very, very good for different types of collaboration, sharing information, interacting with each other. The downside is that I had to buy a new computer to use it. Uh, it required so much processing power, so much uh, graphics power, and so much graphics memory that I ended up having to buy a new, very beefy laptop to be able to use this environment. Same is true with Second Life and a lot of the others. Um, it just requires more power. So, in general, if you don't have a Vista-capable uh, machine, you're going to have a hard time in these environments. They just suck too much uh, power and memory. Well, but, you know, there are people that do amazing things in these environments. I have a 16-year-old cousin who actually builds objects in Second Life and sells them to people. So you can actually go using Second Life dollars. You can buy shoes and clothes for your avatar. You can buy dance moves for your avatar. You know? And he's been building this kind of things for the last three or four years, and all that money goes into his college fund. Amazing. So it does translate over into real life. As a matter of fact, there are people, um, there was some work done that looked at people who have uh, Asperger's syndrome, which, mm. you know, is very common in Silicon Valley. Um, and Asperger's syndrome, people don't, they aren't able to relate to others very well. Mm -hmm. And often they relate to machines better, and that's why it's very common here in Silicon Valley. But, um, they found that people with Asperger's uh, in Second Life could practice interactions, social interactions with other people, and that that practice translated into their real-life, everyday environment. Really? That's great. And so, you know, for you who are doing training or HRT, this has some really interesting implications. Yeah. I'm beginning to think about that. <laughs> very, very interesting. We've, we've been talking with uh, David Coleman and Stuart Levin today on Bookends, the authors of Collaboration 2.0. Before we continue with our interview today, I'd like to remind you that you can order your copy of this book by going to book 20collaboratecom forward slash wiki. Stuart. Yes, Susan. <laughs> Stuart, we, uh, we met years back, <clears throat> excuse me, in a conference in Washington, D.C., and you shared a story that I found to be quite amazing <clears throat> about your first work experience straight out of college when you worked for a law firm. And uh, in retrospect, I, I tend to think that this probably was a real signal that you were going to work someday in the area of collaboration I was wondering if you would uh, not mind sharing this kind of amazing story with our listeners. Sure. Actually, the, 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 the short story is that I hadn't thought of this story for many, many years um, until I wrote the book, Getting to Resolution. And um, it was actually 
the beginning of my second year of law school, I was working for a legal services firm, and um, I was given 25 cases on the first day of the semester, and since Stuart, these ought to keep you busy for the next 15 weeks. Uh, it's a semester's worth of work. And three weeks later, I went back to the head of the program, and I asked for more cases, and they looked at me funny, like, what did you do with the cases we gave you? And I said, well, I, I was able to get them all resolved. And they looked at me, and they said, how? And I said, well, I, I, I read through the situations. I got a sense of what would be fair to everyone, not just to my side, and uh, called people up, and they all said yes. And um, I then spent the next 10 years learning how to be a very effective litigator, but getting further and further away from the, really the, the kind of work that I want to do, which is about bringing people together for both resolving problems, but even more important for um, being able to create the visions that they have. I, I just love that story. I just think it's so much fun. I'm, I'm sure that the uh, the attorneys at your firm were not quite as enamored with it. <laughs> no, I didn't know anything about what I was supposed to do as a lawyer. Stuart, <laughs> you know, refers to himself as a recovering lawyer. A recovered lawyer. I love it. I'm so glad you recovered. Stuart, you, you talk about the uniqueness of communicating in a 2.0 environment. Uh, you start to get into this around page 147 in the book, where you talk about uh, under the heading of building bridges. Could you share some of the pluses and minuses of this versus the traditional face-to-face -face kinds of communication? Sure. Well, well, you know, in any environment, communication is complex because essentially what communication is about is 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 um, trying to build a bridge of shared meaning between people. And when we're in a face-to-face -face environment, as David mentioned earlier, we have all of these cues. And what most of us don't realize is um, that about 80% or more of communication generally is nonverbal. Um, you know, are the observations we make of other people when, when we see them face-to-face. -face. Now, we don't have that broad uh, array of messages that we receive when we're communicating in um, in a in a 2.0 world. So the good news is that we can communicate, you know, with anybody at any time, no matter where they are, and we we don't have to be present in the same time. But the bad news is we're we're functioning in a much narrower bandwidth, and we we can't, you know, deliver a message that's difficult and say um, and look at the person and, and, and see immediately what their emotional reaction is and, and respond to it. I mean, David uses a great line, and it's just so true. You know, you should never break up with your girlfriend um, in an email. <laughs> Good advice. Do do <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, you know, the manager of the New York Mets was just fired recently in an email in the middle of the night. Oh, you're kidding. No. No, people do it all the time. People it's do it. It's the wrong medium. Right. Um, so the good news is it greatly increases um, the capacity we have to work with others. The bad news is uh, we have to be much more conscious about using the communication tools with the awareness of um, the limitations that we have. Yeah, I would agree. 
Stuart, you, you also share with us in the book your formula for creating engagement, shared meaning, and context. I was wondering if, uh, if you could talk with us a little bit about these uh, as you discuss them on page 149. Sure. I mean, the, 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 probably one of the most critical things that I want to say around this area is that um, in the 2.0 environment, when we're not face-to-face -face with others, it really demands that we be much more conscious and we be more formal um, in the way we communicate with others. And by formality, I mean that we consciously pay attention to building an environment of trust, that we consciously pay attention to having clear agreements about what it is that we're doing together in terms of, you know, the contracting process, that we have very much um, agreed upon processes for how will we communicate, how will we resolve conflict, that we take the time to very, very consciously honor these communication protocols. Yeah. You talk, you know, a bit about a conflict, and I've certainly noticed that often when people work together, conflict does occur. Really, uh, <laughs> it's been a been a um, something just a just an observation I've made along the way. I guess I guess this certainly can also happen in a 2.0 environment, and I really loved your conflict continuum. Could you walk us through the three steps that you share on pages 153 through 155? Sure, and I'll also talk about, in a way, about you know how it how it relates very much to the 2.0 world. So the the, the conflict continuum um, is that number one, the first sign that there's something going on that needs attention is we feel stress, we feel emotion, we get triggered by something that someone else says or does. Um, and that's kind of a prehistoric almost emotional reaction, the flight or fright mechanism. So that's, that's you know, point one. Point three of the conflict continuum is that we, we resolve differences in conflict by some form of collaborative negotiation, some form of dialogue, some form of back and forth. In the middle, and this is the critical stage, is we have to be managed, we have to manage our own emotion. We have to be good at self-managing. We have to exhibit a higher level of emotional intelligence. Now, the interesting phenomenon in the 2.0 world is as soon as we're finding ourselves feeling a level of stress, a level of trigger, um, it's almost a signal that we've got to pick up the telephone to be able to engage in a real-time dialogue back and forth with other people. Because generally speaking, using text is um, not going to be a, an efficient or an effective way of getting to the bottom of what's going on. I would agree. Having said that, the flip side, and this is how, you know, this whole array of tools we have broadens our capability, um, there are certain people who can't be in the same room because they just trigger themselves and trigger each other. And for those folks, working in a textual medium can be um, a great, great tool. I, I was once on a panel whether or not divorce mediation could be effectively conducted uh, via email. Oh. or using web tools. And I was arguing the pro side, and I, I raised that specific argument. 
that there are certain couples who just can't be in the same room, but they'd be great because they're highly intelligent and have the capacity to um, express their thoughts uh, in, in a textual way. Email would be a great medium for them to use. I could see that. Can, can you talk about trolls and flamers? <laughs> sure. Okay, trolls and flamers are people who um, who show up um, in an electronic network. And, you know, um, I, I guess a, a good way to describe them is the way a colleague used to describe um, certain people inside of organizations who were not, quote, housebroken, meaning they don't pay attention to the rules of the, the, the road. Um, and, and these people... Um, will say nasty things, are, 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 you know, want to be disruptive, don't want to contribute, um, and they're just kind of off the wall a little bit. Or they may contribute in a bad way. Right. And, and you know, in, the, in, in, a, in a network environment, you need to have certain um, rules of the game and protocols that people are aware of, and uh, these people um, at some moment in time will, will get barred from network if they're communicating in a way that doesn't comply with our agreed ground rules. Mm -hmm. well, let, me, let me give you a story on this. Um, so I was in an online community and there was someone who showed up and uh, posted a, a blog that was kind of very self-promoting. And the response he got most of the time from the blog was, huh? You know, people didn't really understand. And when he did this a second time, he uh, got some responses and others saying, why are you doing this? And the third time he did this, the community really came down on him, and he was never seen again after that. And uh, the point I want to make is that there are these kinds of people, but that a lot of these communities uh, in the Web 2.0 space are much more self-policing. You don't have to have someone in a kind of command and control position, and that it's very hard for companies or organizations to believe that the community will police itself, and that they often feel like they have to guide and control it, and that's one of the ways to kill a community. Yeah. Shunning is a very, very powerful punishment. <laughs> yes, we're quite familiar with that here in Pennsylvania Dutch I country. <laughs> I thought about that as I, as I, as I said it, Susan. I, I was also thinking, as you were talking uh, there, uh, David, about the groups patrolling themselves of Kurt Lewin, um, a pioneer in the adult learning industry, and one of his premises was that uh, groups will take care of themselves. And uh, so it sounds like that that ties very much to social communities as well. Uh, Stuart, could you, could you provide for us a brief introduction to what you mean by resolutionary thinking? Sure. Resolutionary thinking is um, it, 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 it's a mindset, um, and there are you know, ten principles that I have behind it. And it's, it's a way we approach um, engaging and collaborating with other people. Um, it's the idea that, you know, collaboration is the ultimate game. Working together well is the ultimate game. And, and how is it that we can, we can do that well? And it involves kind of a different way of thinking, that when you get into exploring differences or conflict, it, it's not about winning. It's about learning. It's about sharing information. That generally speaking, everybody in a situation can get what they want or need. It's about thinking long-term and not short-term. Um, it's about people taking responsibility, really demonstrating uh, higher levels of emotional um, intelligence and people taking into account 
uh, not just the thinking of others, but the feeling of others also. So that's kind of a, uh, a, um, a an overview. Excellent. Thank you. You, you also, on page 175 of the book, provide an ex- some excellent guidance on how to build solid agreements. Could you, could you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, one of the things, it, it, it's more important in a 2.0 world to have clarity about what it is that we're doing together when a team initially forms. Um, and, and the way to do that is to, to create what I call an agreement for results. What, are, what is our intent and vision? What roles does each person play? What promises uh, do people agree? Uh, what are they going to do? Metrics, how will we measure whether or not we were successful in achieving that uh, goal or result? Um, consequences of not achieving the vision. Uh, how will we resolve conflict? Um, how long is this agreement for? What's the value that, that flows to each person? And, and ultimately, do we trust enough that we're willing to continue to move forward with these other folks? I mean, in a, in a 2.0 world, this whole process of contracting becomes um, more and more important uh, than it is in, in, um, in ordinary face-to-face dealings. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but certainly useful in, in face-to-face dealings as well. That too. And, and, and yeah. Ch- I'm sorry. Yeah, and a lot of the a lot of the things in terms of communication, you know, there there are similar principles, mm-hmm. but things are more magnified when you are communicating um, at a distance. So Absolutely. Attention, as I said, to formality becomes more and more important. But what what I think would be useful, um, Susan, is is in the in the in the few minutes. I know we, we're you know. Um, down to the time. Down to the time. Just, just to, 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 to share with people kind of the, the, the seven critical buckets when it comes to interpersonal communication um, that are just so important. Please do. Uh, becoming a conscious communicator. Real important to be aware of the impact that the words and actions you're going to have on other people. So be, become very, very conscious. Make sure you engage and invite people when you're building a team or an online community. Make sure that you pay attention to building trust. Um, being creative, the third one. There's no manual about how to do this. We're all kind of experimenting, and so we need to um, do things like virtual happy hours or virtual lunches or virtual coffee to make sure that we, we spend that time in, in, in engaging with people that we're working with at a distance. And as David said earlier, you've got to get people together periodically, face-to-face, honoring formality and process design. Um, That's number four. Number five is awareness of the three Vs, that we have visual, vocal, and verbal aspects of communication. A lot of that is nonverbal, and we need to communicate with that in mind. Choosing the right channel. Is it email or some some electronic chat? Do you need to pick up the phone? Do you need a... um, uh, a conference, or do you, do you have to be face-to-face? And the last one is recognizing cultural differences, using that, that word culture in a broad um, context, different industries, different geographies, different age groups, um, different genders. So those are seven critical things that, that we really need to pay attention to working in a 2.0 world. Excellent. Thank you. A final question for, for both of you as we, as we wrap up today. 
Uh, aside from the book, what other resources are you offering for teams and organizations that are facing the challenges of working with distributed teams and other kinds of virtual working relationships we find ourselves in? Um, well, we're doing um, a lot of webinars and virtual tutorials. We just did a seminar a couple of weeks ago, an in-person seminar. Um, we are putting together a half-day virtual tutorial on the book uh, for September. Uh, we're looking at doing an unconference. An unconference. Uh, an unconference is a conference where there's focus on the topic, but none of the speakers are selected, and you come together, and in the first morning, everyone uh, works together to come up with the uh, different sessions that are of interest, and, and then go off and attend what sessions you want. Wow, that sounds it's great. kind of a Web 2.0 take on a conference. Yeah. It's, kind of, it's kind of like an open space. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. For you. It's like open space. But the critical thing is because this area is so new, the thing that David and I really want to find out is what are people looking for? What mm -hmm. kind of resources that they need to function more effectively in this area? Excellent. We also have a, a social networking space on uh, near time. Uh, which people can use, and we have some additional resources up there. And then, uh, as I said earlier, I'm compiling a list of collaborative tools, and I'll have that up on my website at some point. Excellent. And, and is that the same site that we've been referring to, the wiki, or is that a different uh, site? No, collaborate.com. Collaborate.com. Okay. Dot okay. com or resolutionworks.com. Or resolutionworks. So if anybody out there wants to contact either David or I for additional information, um, that would be um, a good way to do it. Well, I applaud both of you for your excellent work and, and the book and, and just your contribution to this field, which is, you know, changing moment by moment um, and helping us to try to wrap our arms around it and, uh, you know, not only understand it but recognize it's, it's what can make us more effective. Um, I, I'd like to mention... Um, uh, our July edition of Bookends before we close our time today. Uh, we will be featuring the, a book entitled Taking Charge of Your Positive Directions. And this is written by J. Burt Freeman. And that session will be on July the 17th. Uh, we have a rather exciting lineup of authors for the, for the remainder of the year for bookends, including um, authors of the international bestseller Love Em or Lose Em. And that will be coming up later in the year. To be sure that you're always in the know about bookend events, we encourage you to go to teamapproach.com and sign up for our news list and our uh, special bookends news notifications under the free stuff button on our site today. You'll also find the archived recordings from other bookend sessions that we've uh, hosted this year. And um, you'll find lots of other great information under the free stuff area of our site. Um, again, I'd, I'd like to thank both David and Stuart for being our guests today on Bookends and sharing your, your experience and expertise with, with all of us. And uh, for Bookends, I'm Susan Stamm, and I hope to see you next month. Thank you, Susan. Thank you both. Thank you.